The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. They are very clearly establishing not only that President Trump knew that facts he was repeating were inaccurate and untrue and fraudulent, also that steps he was taking were illegal. It quotes from legal advice he got from the White House counsel, again, suggesting the White House counsel at least does not see executive privilege as being a barrier to providing this sort of information to a grand jury, presumably in a criminal investigation. That's pretty damning if your evaluation of this is, is, is the president acting in a concept of presidential duty consistent with you know the duty to take care of the law under Article 2, right? Like It's just hard to frame that with actually how we think of the president's duties. If you're not completely immunizing the president, if you're saying he's within his role as the president, they are clearly building the case. This is outside of that. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 2nd, 2023. It's an emergency edition of the podcast, and I don't think I need to explain why Donald Trump has been indicted for the third time, third and a half time. And this is the big one, folks. It is a multi-count federal indictment for January 6th for a range of crimes, we're going to go into the details of them, uh, that all involve the attempt to prevent the peaceful transfer of power in the winter of 2020-2021. Joining me in the virtual jungle studio for this conversation are senior editors Scott Anderson Roger Parloff, Quinta Jurassic, executive editor Natalie Orpet, and uh, our newest uh, legal fellow, Fulton County correspondent Anna Bauer, who uh, I believe this is your second day of employment at Lawfare, um, although that is a bit misleading. Let's get into it because there is just a huge amount to cover here. Quinta, I'm going to start with you. Give us the narrative overview. Is this the big one? And what do you measure it on the Richter scale? I can never remember quite how the Richter scale works, so I'm I'm not going to attempt that. Um, it's a logarithmic scale. Yeah, I, know so I, I know that it's logarithmic, but beyond that, I'm not sure what the top end is. I would just say that, um, look, I mean, I think that I don't want to downplay the importance of the hush money prosecution in New York 
or the Mar-a-Lago indictment or the superseding indictment to Mar-a-Lago, which we saw last week, which adds uh, some additional obstruction counts on. Uh, But I think this is kind of the indictment that everyone has been waiting for um, since the special counsel, Jack Smith, began this sort of first took over this investigation. Um, It really directly takes on Trump's effort to hold on to power in the aftermath of the 2020 election and tackles it really directly. Um, I think we had kind of a hint of what it was going to look like when there was first reporting about the target letter that Trump received, I believe, last week and the statutes that that target letter named. And so that's not a not a, a huge surprise. Um, we have uh, of the charges, 18 U.S.C. 371, which is a conspiracy statute, conspiracy to defraud the United States, a pair of obstruction statutes, and then uh, 18 U.S.C. 241, conspiracy against rights. And we can talk a little bit more about why that inclusion is significant. So it does not address directly. Um, some people were wondering whether it would explicitly charge Trump with insurrection or seditious conspiracy. Um, or incitement to violence. It does not do that, but it really does tackle his speech on January 6th quite directly um, as part of this pattern of conduct it's setting out um, as this broader conspiracy to defraud the United States and deprive rights. Um, sort of telling the story about how Trump, uh, the indictment asserts, knowingly promulgated a variety of lies about 2020 election fraud was part of a conspiracy to put forward false electors to essentially hold on to power and did this to obstruct the uh, normal proceedings of the federal government and to deprive voters of, of their right for their vote to be counted. Um, and as part of that, it really you know explicitly talks about uh, Trump's speech on the ellipse on January 6th and his refusal to tell the uh, rioters to stand down. Um, so in that sense, I think I was very struck by not only how directly, you know, how, how striking it is that we have this indictment in the first place, but how the indictment really does not shy away from tackling what I think is really kind of the molten core of the matter. All right. Natalie, earlier this morning, we were speculating that when this indictment came down, one of the big questions was going to be, to what extent does it vindicate the January 6th committee? And to what extent does it go beyond the story that the committee told? And so uh, one of the things that struck me about it was that it was relatively short. It's only 45 pages. And so I want to pose this question to you. Is this the Liz Cheney and Benny Thompson vindication document Uh, Or is there stuff the Justice Department came up with here that the committee did not? Well, I think that it is definitely a vindication of the committee's work, though perhaps not in the way that some people are going to think about it. Um, It's a vindication in the sense that the narrative here and many of the key facts feel very familiar to those of us who paid quite close attention to what the committee was doing and the outcome of its report. It is not, though an indication that the committee built a criminal case. Um, It is 
clear that the committee had a lot of um, depositions and um, supporting material as we had talked about at the time and as Ben actually wrote about in depth for us, um, the committee's footnotes of the report present quite a lot of hard evidence. But this is a fundamentally different proceeding. It has to stand up to criminal procedure rules that the committee didn't have to face. And it has to stand up to a lot more complications when it comes to putting on a case and surviving different types of legal challenges. So I do think that this indictment reads as familiar and reads as an echo of the committee's work. But in reality, what it reflects is that DOJ was able to build a very solid case with respect to these particular charges on these particular facts. So to the extent there are facts that were in the committee's report that we don't see here, that may be an indication that DOJ wasn't able to obtain sufficient evidence that they felt comfortable raising them in support of the charges that they are making. It's also the case that it's a strategic question as to how much factual evidence you put into an indictment versus how much you reserve for trial or even for an interim superseding indictment. So all of that is to be seen. But I think the the main point that I would make here is that although there's a lot of familiarity, which I do think is a vindication of the committee's work, it is also um, the hint of what else DOJ has done, the special counsel has done, that the committee was not necessarily able to do. All right. Uh, Scott, I have. I want you to walk us through the, the uh, statutes that the I mean, Quinta mentioned them, but walk us through the the statutes that are charged here. And I, I want to ask Roger very specifically about one of them, and I'm sure he can guess which one. But let's start with the overview. What has Jack Smith charged here, and and how does the story weave into these particular charges? Well, this is a the rare indictment where the legal part is pretty thin, not because the case isn't there, but because it essentially builds the same set of three different criminal charges off of the exact same articulation of the facts. Um, we have uh, basically essentially three different types of conspiracy, one to defraud the United States, conventional 371 claim, uh, one that's a conspiracy to deprive people of rights, section 241 claim, and the uh, another related conspiracy, 1512C2 and 1512K, that are interrelated provisions of the same statute provision, 18 U.S.C. 1512. Um, that also leans on kind of obstructing a provision and conspiracy to construct, obstruct uh, a proceeding, excuse me. So the facts are actually kind of the most important part of this document in a way, um, because they are the unified case that's being brought that's applied to all three of these. Essentially, the special counsel is saying the same set of facts supports conviction under all three of these debt criminal provisions. And the, the, he essentially breaks down the factual allegations into five categories. The latter of two are are closely related. First, he says... President Trump and co-conspirators, he's got a list of six co-conspirators identified, uh, not by name, although frankly, it's not hard to identify who they are once you piece it together. First, special counsel says they made an effort to deceive state officials into basically messing with electoral vote and elector, elector nomination certifications. So trying to take various measures to have them recalled, to have them uh, take different state law proceedings to try and reverse the election results following the 2020 election. 
Separate from that, there's also an allegation that there's a false elector scheme where independent often, although not entirely of state authorities, there is an effort to recruit different slates of false electors in a number of states, assemble these false electors, essentially Republican electors, to assemble packages of votes, then send them to the archivist, send them to the vice president, send them to Washington, D.C., as if they were the legitimate and valid electoral vote packets that normally get sent by the properly elected electors indicating who they voted for and creating enough chaos in the system that it might provide an opportunity for either Vice President Pence to lean towards those electors or for state legislatures to take later action. And interestingly, the special counsel frames this as initially an effort to preserve legal rights uh, when it's first developed in November 2020 that rapidly evolves into one to try and fraudulently assert legal rights that, that the president, former president did not have. After the false elector scheme, it shifts to a Justice Department scheme where it accuses the former president, uh, and particularly Jeffrey Clark, co-conspirator four, uh, as identified in the indictment, of orchestrating a scheme that is actually where I think is some of the more interesting and some of the more new content, some of which have been reported on, but not quite in the level of detail we have here, basically saying that they launched a scheme to try and get the Justice Department to make different assertions about fraudulent results of the election to provide a hook on which state officials or members of Congress or others could hang their own efforts to interrupt the election results. And as part of this, former President Trump was threatening to make Jeffrey Clark the acting attorney general at one point, arguably did, or at least tried to make him the acting attorney general before backing down from that step. And one of the more interesting kind of behind the scenes exchanges we see uh, described in the indictment. And then from there, it goes on to two different buckets of activity that are closely related to each other. One is an effort to enlist Vice President Pence to participate in the scheme to shift the election results in his capacity as overseeing the count of the electoral votes as president of the Senate uh, and then vice president. Um, it initially starts as friendly efforts, as efforts by former President Trump, where he you know, says, I want you to help me do this. Here's why I'm doing it, repeating a lot of false claims that the president purportedly knew was false, is alleged to have known was false in the indictment. When that doesn't work, he brings additional pressure on Pence, basically saying, You're going to be mad. I'm going to be mad at you. Uh, You know, you're doing the wrong thing. This is bad for your political future. And then ultimately, that shifts into the fifth category, which is where at the point where Pence comes public and says, I'm going to count the electoral votes straight. I'm not going to participate in any of these schemes. Then Trump leans on the threat of violence that's brought on by the actual January 6th riot itself. Um, And the special counsel is not shy about tying the actions of the rioters, of the insurrectionists on January 6th to President Trump's statements, usually his tweets, his very public statements released saying he was essentially guiding them and capitalizing on this reaction these people were having to his tweets and that he knew they would have to his tweets and his refusal to issue a tweet telling them to back down to try and bring additional pressure on Vice President Pence. And it's worth noting while it's framed as putting pressure on Vice President Pence, those pressure efforts actually continued well into the evening and extended to other members of Congress as well. Uh, there are accounts of co-conspirator one, that's Rudy Giuliani, calling members of the Senate well into the evening of January 6th before the vote count was finally finalized late that evening, I think actually early into the morning, technically on January 7th, um, when the certification finally was completed. So it's a very complex and dense set of facts. None of it is shockingly new, but there are new details, new pockets. And what's impressive, as Natalie's already alluded to, is that they seem confident they can prove all this in a court without relying on hearsay. That was the advantage that the committee had. You can talk about hearsay in a 
congressional committee. Here, it looks like they have witnesses that are, or documents that are willing to testify to some of these statements, a lot of which are quoted. They also suggest that they've gotten all over a lot of executive privilege barriers that might have existed in regards to congressional testimony, because there are several former administration officials quoted here, or that they're relaying the details of internal conversations that seem to otherwise would have raised executive privilege barriers. And so they seem confident they're going to be able to bring those and are incorporating those into, those into their case. Uh, and so it's, it's really pretty compelling. Um, and the interesting theme throughout this that it really hits repeatedly in every one of those five buckets of activities is Trump fully knew various facts he was asserting were false. And they go to pains to demonstrate he had an array of officials and political advisors and other people he turned to in the ordinary course of business telling him these are false. You should stop making these factual assertions. And he would continue to assert them. And the biggest evidence of this is actually his Twitter account um, and the tweets he issues reasserting a lot of these claims shortly after the indictment shows former President Trump had an official tell him this is false. Um, And that's obviously really going to feed into the question of his intent and his mens rea going into what is he doing and making these assertions? What is he doing when he calls officials and makes these assertions? It's really trying to make the case that he knew these were false and he's not going to be able to shift blame to his advisors or to his lawyers, uh, as we've heard some reports, is his his current legal defense strategy. All right. Roger, I want to ask you about one of these counts in particular, which is the count alleging uh, a conspiracy to obstruct a federal proceeding. Uh, You have written, I think, more extensively than any other single person who has ever existed in the history of the world about the struggles that the government is having with this statute in a bunch of other January 6th cases I had kind of assumed they were going to avoid using it in this for reasons of its potential vulnerability in the D.C. Circuit or at the Supreme Court. But there it is. And so I guess I can think of two ways to read this. One is they're very confident that this charge is going to stand up. And the second is that they are not confident that it's going to stand up, but they've got the others to back it up on essentially the same fact pattern. And so just like with the many January 6th cases, it kind of doesn't matter all that much if it stands up, which are we give us a little for those who think I'm speaking gibberish right now, give us a little background on the dispute. And why do you think they went ahead with including a a 1512 obstruction federal proceeding case here? Yeah, so actually there are two of the four charges that are at issue. Uh, One is 18 U.S.C. 1512 C2, corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding. And the other is conspiracy to corruptly obstruct an official proceeding. That's 1512K. And although 1512C2 is the only one that's currently being challenged, obviously all the same arguments uh, apply. And there are two categories of challenge. And uh, it's actually, there are cert petitions pending. The second one was filed yesterday in the Supreme Court now, Corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding uh, was enacted back in, I think, 2002 as part of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. And uh, there isn't a lot of uh, legislation 
legislative history explaining exactly, but in broad brush. Uh, so one of the claims is that, well, this doesn't sound like a financial crime. And also most of 1512 deals with tampering with evidence, tampering with uh, witnesses, tampering with the integrity of, of evidence coming before a proceeding. And here it's being used, it's corrupt obstruction of the proceeding itself through, you know, violence, uh, not, not so much in this particular indictment, but through uh, other forms of wrongdoing. Here, the idea is to disrupt the whole proceeding, not some piece of evidence in it being offered into it. So there are two, two challenges. One is with what lawyers call the actus reus. What is the act itself? And, and that claim is that at least one judge did hold that uh, you could only use this statute to when, when the claim is that something like witness tampering or destruction of evidence, and you can't use it in this broader way of trying to interfere with the whole proceeding. Only one judge ha- has accepted that. 50, at least 15 judges in the District of Columbia uh, have ruled the other way. And then on appeal, the D.C. Circuit very narrowly upheld the way the DOJ has been using it. But now it goes to the Supreme Court, and you have a very, obviously, a very conservative group of judges and some uh, arguments that are being tailored for them. And I, I would have a great deal of concern about whether this will survive. The other, the other half of the challenge has to do with what lawyers call mens rea, the not not the acts you commit, but the mindset with which you commit them. And that's that corruptly element. And there's a lot of dispute about what corruptly means. So uh, I think the reason it's there is that it's a 20-year felony. And it, as the DOJ sees it, it, it fits well. The other uh, statutes, uh, 371, the conspiracy to uh, defraud the United States, that's a five-year maximum. And the 241 charge is a 10-year maximum, I think, under these circumstances. And, and that is not just a question of, are you really going to get that sentence? It also impacts what the sentencing guidelines are. So I think that the most severe sentencing guidelines would come out of these corrupt obstruction of, a, of, a, of an official proceeding charges. But it has a... A, a serious set of roadblocks ahead of it is fair, fair to say. I would say uh, uh, some obstacles to to uh, to overcome. Now, like I say, it's uh, you have these cert petitions right now, and and of course, ordinarily to get cert, uh, in most cases, you would you would have a you would need a circuit split, a split between the courts of appeals in the United States about how to interpret something. And we don't have that here. But uh, what the government, what the uh, defendants are saying in in raising their challenge is that, uh, well, among other things, they're now saying uh, Trump is charged with, I mean, you know, the president, uh, the, the former president of the United States is charged with and, and the leading presidential candidate is charged with it. And, uh, you know, so that makes it, 
uh, nationally momentous. And in addition, it's been charged in over 300 of the January 6th cases. And in addition, it's the type of charge that uh, would arise more often in the District of Columbia than in other uh, jurisdictions, at least in terms of charges stemming from some sort of obstruction of a congressional proceeding. So, Yeah, uh, although there's obstruction of court proceedings, there's obstruction of Bureau of Land Management hearings in, right? I mean, there's like, there's a lot of federal proceedings around to obstruct. I think that's a weak uh, argument. Well, it, it, it's sort of weak, but, but a lot of those corrupt obstruction of those other types of proceedings, which would typically be uh, more like a conventional court proceeding, there's less dispute about because that is a, a, another aspect of this is that the joint session isn't really a fact finding group. Uh, it's not a, a it's not it's not a tribunal that's using evidence in the in the same way as normal. So there there are unique aspects of it that that would arise mainly in Washington. All right, um, I want to go to Anna for the fun part. Uh, which is to say the color from court today. But before we do, I'm going to um, make you guys sit through one more uh, description of a statute, uh, which is uh, one of my favorite statutes, 18 U.S.C. 371. Uh, Natalie, uh, walk us through what they're alleging here and why 371 is such a wonderful workhorse for the uh special counsel. So as Scott said, um, the the factual allegations in support of 371 are the entire indictment. 371 makes it um, illegal to conspire, I'm going to read it, conspire either to commit any offense against the United States or to defraud the United States or any agency thereof in any manner for any purpose. So folks may rightfully think that that is an absurdly broad statute that can't possibly mean anything, but it's been around for a very long time and it's been upheld over and over and over. And the reason that it is so important is that it does not require a predicate offense. So you do not need to have conspired to commit another crime to be found guilty of this. It is in and of itself a crime to commit uh, an act encompassed by 371. So there is case law that has analyzed what the meaning of defraud the United States means. Essentially, it is to interfere with the way that the government performs its lawful functions. Um, so this is also quite broad, but as you can see in as you can see in the language that some of the factual allegations make, um, the special counsel is tying the facts very closely to this notion of falsity, of deceit, and of the government's legitimate function that was being interrupted and attempted to be conspired against. All right, you've all eaten your spinach. Uh, Anna, you were there in court today, hanging out with the press, waiting for this document to come down. You were tweeting vibes. My first question is, you said that there was a DOJ-looking guy, and I have always thought that all guys in the entire E. Barrett-Prettyman courthouse 
look and dress exactly alike, which is a, to say a blue or black suit and a white shirt and uh, a, a very conservative tie. And so what is the DOJ guy look and how did you know he was uh, he was a DOJ person? So the he was wearing a blue suit, which is the the classic, as you said, DOJ look. Um, he was sitting at the council's table in the magistrate judge's court, and he also just kind of had this like you know he had the kind of clean cut haircut that the G- DOJ types do. But I actually think, and I need to check on this because I I kind of there I I couldn't quite hear what he said when he got up there, but I think he actually might have ended up being the grand jury foreperson for a a grand jury that was not uh, the January 6th grand jury that returned the Trump indictment. For that return, they had the assistant United States attorney, Molly Gaston, who's been associated with the special counsel's investigation, come up and, um, and present that. But I, I couldn't quite hear um, at that moment when the DOJ looking type uh, went up and presented the two indictments that were not related to the Trump case. But uh, he he certainly had the look of a DOJ person. So um, it was it was it was a very interesting day waiting for uh, the indictment to be presented in open court. And then of course we didn't even really get an indication of whether or not it was. Trump's case, other than, you know, we knew that it was an indictment handed up by the January 6th grand jury, and we knew that Molly Gaston was was associated with that indictment. All right. So one of the big questions that you and I have been batting about about this case as we've been waiting for it is how this interacts with the case, we the other case we're all waiting for, which is uh, the Fulton County, Georgia indictment, which should be coming, I wouldn't say any day now, but any week now. And there is a Georgia section. The facts that are alleged about Georgia here are essentially uh, at least overlapping with what Fonnie Willis is investigating. Does this kind of make her case duplicative in your view, or are there angles that are available to her that are not simply duplicative of what Jack Smith did here? Right. So I think you're right that a lot of the facts here are probably going to be things that we might see uh, in the Georgia indictment and the kind of general story that it tells about a conspiracy to overturn the results of the 2020 election. We do know that Fonnie Willis has been looking at a RICO conspiracy case. Uh, and so I think that the indictment in Georgia, in terms of the general narrative theme that it tells and some of the factual overlap, will be very similar. There is the Raffensperger call. There is the, you know, uh, false claims about uh, election workers at the State Farm Arena. There are a lot of the things that are mentioned there are very similar. However, you know, and and one of the big things, of course, is that one of the the person who's in charge in this indictment, Donald Trump, is very likely to be in the Fulton County case. However, there's very much going to be some things that are different in Fulton County. Um, so one is that we expect it to be a much 
have a much broader scope in terms of who is charged, um, although that could change in terms of who the special counsel ends up charging in this in this indictment. There are, you know, six unindicted co-conspirators, but we believe that many of those folks who are the assumed co-conspirators in this indictment may be charged in Georgia. Um, but in terms of other things that goes go beyond what is articulated here, you know, there are things like the breach of voting systems in Coffee County, Georgia, which may be charged in the Fulton County indictment. Um, there are things like the fake electors in Georgia. We we know from reporting yesterday that George Cheedy, who is the reporter who kind of uncovered the fake electors in Georgia meeting in secret in the state capitol. We know he's been subpoenaed to testify as Fonnie Willis seeks indictments. So we have reason to think from that that it's very likely that maybe some of the fake electors in Georgia will be charged. So there's very much, you know, some very Georgia-specific things that that may uh, be included in the Fulton County case. So I think that, you know, we will see some differences. I also think that it's just important to to note that, you know, RICO, it, it allows you to include some federal offenses, one of them being some instruction, obstruction or, or fraud offenses that are charged at the federal level. So and I, I need to check specifically on the on the conspiracy to defraud uh, three seventy one charge here because there's some funky things in terms of what can constitute a predicate act when it comes to uh, defrauding or, or fraud charges. But certainly the obstruction charge here would would very likely constitute a predicate act. So this is kind of something that is you know helpful to Fonnie Willis because. All she really has to do is give this federal indictment to her grand jury whenever she's seeking indictments in Georgia. So to some extent, it kind of supercharges what she's doing um, if she, you know, for for some reason needs to or wants to uh, give this indictment to her grand jurors. She has it and she can do that when she begins presenting evidence. Um, so I think that covers it, but uh, certainly some things that overlap, but but I expect that we'll see some differences as well. All right. So we do not, I believe, yet have an arraignment scheduled, but I know there are many people in the audience, Anna, who would kill me if I didn't ask you how many hours before the arraignment starts do you plan to be in line uh, <laughs> uh, to get into the courtroom? I think the arraignment might be August 3rd, but I need, I, I don't know if I, I mean, it's been a long day. Maybe I hallucinated that. Um, in terms of when, when an arraignment date is set in the Jan 6 case, um, I, I think that my baseline, I guess, is at 24 hours ahead of time. I don't know. I mean, maybe I need to recalculate because. Last time I got there 27 hours ahead, I was first in line, but that was in Miami where there's less press. People had to kind of travel down there. So here, you know, a lot of the news organizations will have even more resources to send all of their interns days ahead of time. So who knows? Um, but uh, I, I hopefully, hopefully Lawfare will keep its streak of being first in line. We'll see. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. All right. I want to turn, Quinta, to uh, the final statute that is at issue which was a bit of a surprise to a lot of people when it showed up in the target letter and actually involves uh, a conspiracy against rights. It's a civil rights statute. Quinta, you've done a bit of work on the recent enforcement history of this statute, specifically in the electoral context. How good a fit is it? I think it's a pretty good fit. Um, And we should note, so as you say, this is kind of a surprise when it first showed up. Uh, Lawfare, certainly, I think it's fair to say we had not predicted this, or at least I certainly hadn't. Um, It's worth noting that it does not show up in the list of offenses um, that the January 6th committee referred to the Justice Department for possible prosecution of Trump. But it's a it is a surprisingly strong fit. So this statute um, was passed as part of what is now known as the Ku Klux Klan Act um, during the Reconstruction period, essentially as an effort by the Reconstruction Congress to provide the federal government with increased authority to protect the rights of freed people in the South who were essentially being terrorized by white vigilante mobs. And what the statute does um, is, as you say, it creates the crime of a conspiracy against rights. Um, It prohibits a conspiracy to injure, oppress, threaten, or intimidate any person, um, dot, 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 um, and the free exercise or enjoyment of any right or privilege secured to him by the Constitution or laws of the United States. Um, And there is a pretty significant history of the Justice Department using this uh, and its sort of companion offense, uh, 18 U.S.C. 242, to prosecute efforts to either prevent people from voting or prevent their votes from being counted or otherwise interfere with the counting of votes. So um, there's a case, uh, USV Classic in 1941, um, that appears prominently. Um, there's also a case, United States versus Mosley, where the court, the Supreme Court wrote, we regard it as equally unquestionable that the right to have one's vote counted is as open to protection by Congress as the right to put a ballot in the box. Um, and so we were kind of guessing about how this might apply to Trump's actions, but the indictment essentially says, I don't have the, language directly in front of me, but that it it's counting as a conspiracy against rights, Trump's effort to interfere with the vote count. And we have seen the Justice Department pursue a prosecution under the statute very recently. It actually only secured a conviction uh, just in March 
of a man named Douglas Mackey, um, who was prosecuted under 241 for essentially distributing disinformation, uh, so intentional lies about voting in 2016. That uh, essentially, if, if viewers remember, listeners remember, there were tweets that were widely distributed and later showed up as examples of election misinformation telling Hillary Clinton supporters that they could vote by text or by posting a tweet with a particular hashtag. Obviously, that is an effort to prevent people from voting by the means where their vote could actually be counted. Um, and the Justice Department, uh, right after Joe Biden took office in 2021, uh, announced these charges against Mackey. He did uh, file, uh, he did attempt to defend himself on First Amendment grounds, which I think is kind of interesting. And we can maybe think about that in terms of what it says about a potential defense that Trump might raise. The district court was not particularly impressed by that. And he was found guilty. So I don't know how much we can extrapolate from the Mackey case to the Trump case. Obviously, they're pretty distinct in a wide variety of ways. But there are some obvious overlaps. And I do think that it shows that, you know, this statute is a tool uh, that this particular Justice Department is open to thinking creatively about um, in terms of how to apply a sort of long history um, that begins in Reconstruction to efforts to interfere with the functioning of democracy today. All right. I want to turn to possible Trump defenses. Some of them obviously are factual. The facts here are super, super intensive. I'm going to skip over that because if Trump has factual defenses, honestly, we're not going to know until we see some of these witnesses be interrogated. Uh, or cross-examined. But unlike the Mar-a-Lago case, there are certain possible presidential power uh, defenses that you could imagine Trump raising, the most sophisticated of which involves what uh, uh, a matter that our colleague Jack Goldsmith uh, has raised repeatedly, which is the plain statement rule. I won't go into an exegesis on the plain statement rule, but the basic contours of it are that the traditional executive branch view is that if a statute does not by its terms apply to the president, then it does not apply to the president. Then we assume that Congress didn't mean for it to apply to the president. There are acknowledged exceptions to this, like the bribery statute and some other statutes that are so far outside the oath of office that you just, that they don't apply it. But Scott, I look at the plain statement rule defense, and I think we can reasonably expect a motion to dismiss the entire indictment based on it. And that it's possible that that motion could be appealed on an interlocutory basis at least if the judge allowed it pretty early. So what I'm I want to ask you to game out what a plain statement rule motion to dismiss looks like here. Clearly Jack Smith doesn't think it's viable. Bob Mueller didn't think it was viable in 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 that investigation in the obstruction context, but he thought it was serious enough to include a whole memo 
about it in the Mueller report. So I'm curious, is that the first thing we're going to see? Dismiss this because it's a it regulate it it purports to criminalize presidential conduct, and there's no statement in that Ku Klux Klan Act statute or the 371 that the president is included when you say you can't commit a fraud against the United States or or not count the votes. It's a fair question. I look, I think you've already articulated what the motion is basically going to look like. I don't think it's more sophisticated than that, which is that there's this kind of standing position um, or, or theory out there, and this could just not comport with that. I think the problem you're going to run into here is that is the question about how much weight a former president, Donald Trump's position on that, is going to be in a position where he's arguing against the special counsel, certainly, and by implication and by kind of pass its passive silence to the Biden administration, which is the incumbent executive branch. Biden administration has not been shy about drawing careful lines around where the president's official role ends and private roles begin, and or drawing kind of outer perimeters saying like, this is appropriate conduct that can be part of a presidential role, but there's something that goes beyond that. That is what we've seen happening in you know the Gene Carroll sexual assault cases and defamation cases. We saw it happen in a variety of executive privilege motions that are very relevant here, or probably will be the same DC circuit opinions that are going to be cited at, to resolve the inevitable executive privilege arguments that will come up in the matter of the testimony in this case but I think will be dealt with fairly handily because there's pretty established case law in, on that here. And, you know, the special counsel will move forward. The attorney general presumably is not going to object if this indictments come forward or overrule him on his decision to pursue this sort of action. So he's got that kind of tacit imprimatur of saying the executive branch actually thinks this is okay. And so it's just a harder case to make than I think people acknowledge. There also, frankly, could be I don't mean standing in the formal sense, but a, a kind of standing argument here is saying, well, if the incumbent administration isn't willing to assert this as a legal defense, and you're really relying on separation of powers concerns, uh, is this something that even a former official should be allowed to invoke? You can see one perspective where you would say, yeah, just like executive privilege, remember Justice Kavanaugh, among others, thinks not unreasonably, I think for fairly principled reasons, executive privilege are circumstances where former officials and former presidents should be able to invoke it. You could see in a similar argument here, but it's not a given. And it's certainly a weaker claim compared to an incumbent official making that claim. So, you know, I think we very well might see a legal argument around this. I, I kind of will be surprised if it goes anywhere. Just because it's such a broad, would be such a broad interventionist move um, by a Supreme Court that for all its partisan leanings and all its, the fact that it's moved very far to the right politically, uh, for, you know, for better or for worse, uh, when it comes straight to things, motions to intervene in the 2020 election results, which of this would not be the first one of these it's gotten, it's been reluctant to intervene. And so I, I don't see it as super likely. Um, but I, I will admit I have not thought it through very much beyond since you started asking the question and said my name. So perhaps I will change my views in a day or two of further consideration. Yeah, I think I think it's uh, having spent a lot of quality time with this issue during the Mueller investigation. I think there is that Jack Smith is better situated here than Bob Mueller because Bob Mueller in a lot of the the fact patterns that he was thinking of as obstruction there were plausible arguments that these are actually traditional exercises of executive authority, for example, firing people or ordering people to fire other people or exercising the pardon power. 
Whereas here, the president really doesn't have any role in muster, like under the constitution in mustering, you know, fake electors or in pressuring the vice president as how he exercises his uh, authority to count votes. And so I think it's, it's much more attenuated from actual traditional exercises of executive authority. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Ben. And it bears specific on something, a point that we saw the special counsel to come again and again in this indictment. And that is that they're very clearly establishing not only that President Trump knew that facts he was repeating were inaccurate and untrue and fraudulent, also that steps he was taking were illegal. Um, it quotes from legal advice he got from the White House counsel, again, suggesting the White House counsel at least does not see executive privilege as being a barrier to providing this sort of information to a grand jury, presumably in a criminal investigation. That's pretty damning if your evaluation of this is, is, is the president acting in a concept of presidential duty consistent with you know the duty to take care of the law under Article 2, right? Like It's just hard to frame that with actually how we think of the president's duties. If you're not completely immunizing the president, if you're saying he's within his role as the president, they are clearly building the case. This is outside of that. Outside in many of the of these world. Cases. Yeah, I think that's right. Quinta, you had a thought on this. Yeah, just to build even further on that. I mean, I think it's useful to look back to there's a, a 1995 memo from uh, Walter Dellinger, who was then the head of the Office of Legal Counsel, that kind of sets out the, the Justice Department's understanding of the clear statement role as we've been dis- as we've been discussing it. Uh, and Dellinger writes, and I quote, general statutes must be read as not applying to the president if they do not expressly apply, where application would arguably limit the president's constitutional role. Uh, so arguably gives the Justice Department a fair amount of wiggle room. I personally would make the case that interfering in the electoral count in an effort to uh, unlawfully retain control of the presidency when it's obviously been won by the opposing candidate is not within the presidential within the president's constitutional role and applying the statutes to the president in that context would not limit that role. So I think that makes it pretty clear. I think that's right. Whereas firing executive branch exactly. officials yeah. is within the president's role. And so even if you, uh, if you apply the apply the obstruction statute, you could, in some theoretical sense, even if the act is corrupt, impinge on on the non-corrupt exercise of the act. Exactly. Um, all right. Roger, talk to us about Judge Tanya Chutkin, who has been assigned to preside over this and who, uh, unlike Judge uh, Eileen Cannon in the Southern District of Florida, is somebody who the government must be pretty happy to have drawn in this case, I would think. I think so. I think uh, Trump might be happy in that she'll fit into his narrative that, uh, you know, everyone's against him. Uh, this is a, uh, an Obama appointee from about 2014, and she was a, a public defender before for many years. And in the January 6th cases, which is really my only familiarity with her, she's been among maybe the most, uh, for a while she was the uh, harshest sentencer, at least among the cases that were coming before her, comparing like to like. And uh, so I I think she'd she'd be seen as a a good draw for, for the government. You've watched her in 
other January 6 cases as part of your uh, broad sweep of the field in watching uh, watching these cases. This is going to be a super hard case to manage um, for a lot of reasons. How good is she at the just kind of blocking and tackling of managing a case? I'm sorry, I haven't followed her. I haven't been in the courtroom uh, with her. I've I've followed uh, her sentences and uh, only at that level. So I don't have a feel for how she is uh, uh, in terms. But yeah, so I don't don't know that. All right. I have one more subject, which I would, uh, and then I'm going to go to audience questions. Natalie, there are six co-conspirators named in this indictment. None of them is indicted. How do you read that? Do you read it as, we got six more indictments coming, or do you read it as one more indictment with six defendants, or do you read it as some of these people are clearly cooperating at this point, or that the Justice Department, the special counsel's office is, you know, still investigating and it made a Trump decision and then it will make co-conspirator decisions down the road? Um, I think any of the above could be possible, although my expectation is that it is extremely unlikely that co-conspirators will be added to this indictment. Um, and my reason for that is because, as we've alluded to already, this this trial is going to be exceedingly complicated and the volume of expected pretrial motions challenging various aspects of all of this is going to be extraordinary. Um, and all of that is up against a ticking clock before the next presidential election for which, as we all know, Trump is a candidate. And it's also going to be challenged in connection with his ability to run for office and the number of um, court appearances and the obligations and such um, that are, um, he will allege are interfering with his presidential run. I think that having one more motion by co-defendants that would uh, move to sever a proceeding like this, which I have to imagine a defense attorney would do if co-conspirators were added to this case would just be unnecessary. And I think the the Justice Department, or I should say the special counsel's office, will avoid doing that. Um, it's just one more set of motions that they can avoid by indicting people separately. Um, I do think that it is plausible, if not likely, that at least some of these um, unindicted co-conspirators are in the wings deciding whether they want to cooperate um, and I suspect some of them are, are not going to cooperate and um, the special counsel's office will make a decision on prudential and policy res- uh, basis for whether to indict them. And if so, when? Scott? Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, you know, I, I think you're looking at the indictment. If you want to take the indictment as a good statement of what the special counsel is confident they can assert now, which I think is, is a safe way to read it, it says really bad things for conspirators one, two, and four as it identifies them, which are Giuliani, Eastman, John Eastman, and Jeffrey Clark. In all three of those cases, it really built a really strong case, not only of criminal conduct, but very clear knowledge of making fraudulent statements and engaging in 
in several cases, what they acknowledge is unlawful activity. That That is pretty firmly established in a number of cases for all three of those people. Eastman and Giuliani in particular appear throughout. Um, and for Eastman and Clark, what's notable is that they have these little really, really striking paragraphs at paragraphs 81 and 94, where both of them alluded to violence um, and the fact that they are willing to entertain violence resulting from this in support of that. It's not necessary to do that for these charges. I think you put that in because it's it's very compelling color. It, it's compelling of mens rea and, and kind of a mental state. And it underscores what these people were aiming at. That's particularly relevant. It's relevant for Trump, but particularly relevant for the two of them, I think makes them a more dangerous part of the conspiracy. Sidney Powell played a relatively you know smaller role in this indictment. And particularly, they kind of undermine some of the mens rea elements by essentially saying she was crazy and everyone thought she was crazy and suggesting maybe they she even believed some of this stuff. Um, Cheesebro, interesting. They, they kind of make half an apology for, as I mentioned before, they suggest that he actually started with his first memos actually just building a case for how to preserve legal rights and it got kind of twisted into a fraudulent scheme. It was just a weird thing to include in the indictment, which struck me as maybe you're trying to frame a witness that maybe is friendlier or maybe you're working with or or you're going to try and frame the activities in a different light. I just thought that was interesting. And the Boris Epstein really plays a small role in this. That's what we think co-conspirator six is. But we have to bear in mind, he is somebody who is widely suspected of having and, and pretty openly accused in media reports of having played a role in like pretty severely interfering with aspects of the Mar-a-Lago investigation, particularly around Bedminster, uh, having been openly accused of doing that by Trump's former lawyers and in reports that Jeff Justice Department people have made similar sorts of complaints before judges um, evaluating particularly the search of Bedminster for that missing document that was now included in the most recent uh, superseding indictment. So there may be reasons unrelated to this case where Epstein is going to be under legal pressure. And if you're going to indict him for one set of charges, you might be able to indict him for other ones if you can work through the venue issues, uh, or it might provide additional reason for him to eventually cooperate or plea out. So that's my sense of where these kind of co-conspirators fall, just based off what we know from the indictment. Yeah, I just want to say I am. I agree with a lot of that. I am not certain I entirely know who co-conspirator six is. And I'm, I'm not sure either. Yeah, but that's yeah, that's the I, the speculation both internally and I know externally is Epstein, but I haven't gone through and uh, I'm not confident in that. All right. So I just want to say I would be shocked if there were not co-conspirator indictments here. We have a tentative sign that Giuliani is contemplating cooperation, which is that he had a queen for a day proffer session uh, a while back, a few weeks ago. We don't have any evidence that I've seen that uh, Jeffrey Clark or uh, Eastman are cooperating, and I can't imagine you would write them into an indictment like this, as well as some of the others, if you didn't mean to file a separate indictment of them. There is a co-conspirator, uh, I'm just going to throw this open to whoever has thoughts on it, who is not mentioned, uh, and that is Mark Meadows. And I'm curious who has thoughts on that before we go to before we go to audience questions. Um, I just had a quick observation, and then I'll leave it to others. Um, I was actually really struck by the fact that in the indictment there is reference to quote the defendant's chief of staff, which is of course Mark Meadows. Um, so it's clear that none of the named co-conspirators are him, lest there be any confusion. And it, it is a notable decision to mention him specifically in a way that would be highly recognizable. Right. It, I mean, it seems to be treating him like he's a cooperating witness, not like he's somebody they have their eye on for indictment. 
It also mentions, I believe, texts um, that were sent and received by Meadows, which might indicate that he handed over his phone. Um, Although, of course, it could have come from the sender or recipient as well. Or from the January 6th committee, which I think got a bunch of Meadows texts. Um, I I agree with all that. I thought it was interesting, though, that Meadows did not feature prominently in the indictment, which you kind of would have suspected because it seemed like he played such a central role in all this. There were other people that quoted from much more aggressively. Now, maybe that's a sign that they don't want to give away their cards about what they're going to lean on Meadows for. I find it very curious. I'm very curious to see what role he plays moving forward. I actually think it's hard to tell from the indictment as written. But I agree. He's certainly not a co-conspirator. We know that much. I also uh, think there is a really interesting suggestive paragraph. I think it may be paragraph 115 uh, in which the uh, prosecutors describe the conversation between Donald Trump and one Kevin McCarthy, in which Trump allegedly says that, you know, Kevin McCarthy is uh, the protesters are more upset than you are, Kevin. And I can't imagine how they're going to put on that prove that allegation without the testimony of Kevin McCarthy, since presumably Donald Trump is not going to testify to it. All right. We are going to go to audience questions. Joyce, you get the first question this evening. There's been some speculation that Smith didn't charge the insurrection or incitement um, to circumvent some of the First Amendment defenses that would likely have complicated the trial. Do you think that's what was going on? If not, what are the alternative explanations? So I think Quinta kind of got to that early on. Uh, if you charge it specifically, you have all kinds of First Amendment issues. But if you simply fold it into the conspiracy, uh, you can talk all about Trump's conduct vis-a-vis the violence. You can talk about the speech but it raises no First Amendment issues. So I think that's the explanation, but I would be curious uh, if others, um, particularly Quinta, uh, agree with that. That's certainly how I read it. I mean, I would imagine that Trump is probably going to try to raise a First Amendment defense regardless. We'll see how well that does. Um, but it did strike me as sort of an interesting way of attacking that issue while not avoiding the problem of the speech altogether, which I, I had wondered if the special counsel might. And, and just separately from the actual legal challenges, there's also just a timing question. You know, bringing those charges in this context is going to entail a lot more litigation because there are a lot more untested legal issues. Leaving them out lets you focus on these statutes, which are kind of relatively straightforward. You have like you know have the DOJ issue, OLC issue that Ben mentioned already, and you have executive privilege where there's pretty strong DC Circuit case law. So you know if they're trying to fast track this, that explains why they think they narrow their focus to these more established charges that don't bring in those bigger constitutional questions. All right. Our next question is from Shannon. I'll ask to um, have one of us read her questions, so I'll read it for her. She asks, could you speak more about incitement to violence? Could the people who were injured and those who lost their lives on J6 find justice through Jack Smith, or will they have to seek a civil judgment? Could there be a superseding indictment regarding that? Gotcha. Um, So this is partly covered by the answer to the previous question, there are, in addition, civil actions that, uh, on behalf of some of those people, some of them have uh, filed suit. I don't know the state of that lawsuit at this time, 
but those are percolating. But I think, I, I guess if I were one of them, I would feel like this indictment speaks for me. I, I, I mean, it, it does not allege that Trump, it does not use the words incitement to violence as a charge, but it does allege that Trump conspired to prevent the the transition of power by means up to and including the use of violence, and that that was all part of a, a grand conspiracy. I'm curious, does anybody does anybody feel like it gives short shrift to the violence aspect? She the the question did raise the question. Well, I took to be compensation to be making whole, which this would affect because even the I, I'm not 100 percent familiar with the system of like, there are ways you can get victims compensation under certain criminal offenses. I don't know exactly how it works, but you wouldn't, the people physically injured or threatened by the events of January 6th wouldn't clearly be the victims of this. It's actually, we all are because we're essentially voters having our votes diminished. That's the underlying liability theory. So I actually think it would impact that. Um, But again, they have civil claims there. Benny Thompson, notably pursuing a civil claim uh, against Trump and others in relation to these events. And other people might be able to follow suit in a certainly a criminal conviction would help in that regard, I suspect, uh, although it's not determinative itself. Benny Thompson himself recused, I think, uh, but there are a lot of police officers. That's right, sorry. There are a lot of police officers who have actions, and uh, there are some congressmen still that have actions. Tim, uh, the floor is yours for the penultimate question today. Excellent. Thank you. For the panel, um, wondering to what extent uh, the DOJ or Jack Smith has any leverage or leeway in keeping the process moving forward and trying to to move away from Trump's uh, obvious plan to throw sand in gears and, you know, stall, delay, delay uh, at all costs. So, Natalie, you have probably more direct uh, recent litigation experience than any of us. What do you think? Is is this a case you can move quickly? It doesn't have any of the classified material. Uh, on the other hand, yeah, we're going to see a flood of motions, right? There's going to be a flood of motions. There's going to be a tremendous amount of evidence, which is going to lead to a lot of discovery disputes and a lot of claims by Trump's attorneys that they absolutely positively need more time to sift through all of this. The The number of possible and I think plausible motions is is just really staggering. Um, I'll do a little plug for a podcast I did recently with Brandon Fox, um, who was a prosecutor, head of the criminal division at the Central District of California, who spoke about all of the um, likely challenges that are going to come up in this litigation, as well as the intersection of this litigation with the many other criminal and civil proceedings that Trump is currently enmeshed in, and the fact that all of those have already scheduling orders in place. Um, and there um, are limited but some ways in which prosecutors can coordinate with each other um, to try to plan their cases without undue disruption to others, um, of course, the special counsel's office can decide within the two cases that it is leading up, namely this case and the Mar-a-Lago case, how it would like to proceed and at what speed. 
But yeah, as you say, the Trump team is going to try to throw sand in as many gears as possible. They already made a motion in the Mar-a-Lago case to move all of the proceedings until um, and to move the trial date and more of the proceedings until after the election so as not to interfere with that. I think the the ways that the um, that the special counsel's office can respond are, as we can see here, to try to make the charges as simple and straightforward legally as possible to avoid charges that would be um, more subject to lengthy legal challenges, to perhaps stipulate to some factual issues, um, to try to narrow the universe of contested items, and to, to generally just play very, very close to the rules so that they maintain credibility in the judge's eyes file motions to expedite various things, just act really aggressively when it comes to requests for um, scheduling different stages of the trial and just reacting creatively to all of the different types of challenges that will come their way. Yeah, I also think uh, the judge in this case is going to be much less patient than Trump may have reason to expect of of, uh, Judge Cannon. Um, This is this is not the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida, and the judges in the District of Columbia all, uh, at least the ones who've been on the bench more than a couple of years, all have experience with Trump-related litigation of one sort or another, and, and uh, they know this game. Sabra, you get the the two final questions uh, this evening. Let's start with your serious one. Okay, thank you so much. Um, so uh, just wondering about the, the framing on the false elector memo. I read it as a preemption of the, but what about Hawaii in 1960 argument? And so wondering about thoughts on that. I think that's for you, Scott. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, they, they they hint again at that the initial idea that the motivation framing Cheeseboro's November memorandum was to do something similar to the Hawaii case, where, you know, you're going to try and take steps to preserve it. Now, like here, you're doing that in a way that doesn't have the sign off of any state certifying official that you would normally need. Um, that was nor that does there a statement that you're they're holding off or ready to certify something contingent on the result of the state election, which was more or less the case in the Hawaii case. Um, so it's different. And I'm not sure, you know, that means that it was like not necessarily a little bit uh, with bad intent to do something that's a little different than the Hawaii case. And I don't think the indictment is saying that, that they're the same. But they seem to early on be distinguishing that. And then they go even further and say, and this thing, which they say was originally, hey, we're doing a little bit here to try and preserve legal rights. Now we're saying, well, let's just take these these things that we submitted just to preserve our legal rights. And even though there was never a judicial holding, and even though no state official is on board with these, let's go ahead and submit them to the vice president of the archivist. And in several cases, they actually point out that Cheesebro and others were involved in later communications with some of the fake electors, telling them outright, we're only going to use this if a court rules in our direction, much more, much more like the Hawaii case. And then they went ahead and tried to use, tried to use them anyway, even though that never happened. Um, so then in some ways are actually defrauding the fraudulent electors in at least some cases, but not all of them. So I think that's right. They're trying to distinguish it there. But I do think it's a little interesting that they are careful to frame that kind of evolution of intent. I just thought that was an interesting inclusion. But, you know, it's a tea leaf. It's easy to maybe make too much of it. Your second question with which we will close. Uh, my second question is for those of us who are local 
to DC? How can we volunteer to be Anna's interns and take uh, shifts in line for her? Anna, is there a, like, do you take applications? I mean, you don't even need to apply. Like the parties at the E. Barrett Prettyman Courthouse starting roughly 24 to 30 hours ahead of Thursday at 4 p.m. So come on by. Anyone who wants to spell Anna can simply show up and uh, and uh, will receive grateful tweets uh, in response. We are going to leave it there. There is a whole lot more to say and think and write about this. Uh, we have all just had a couple hours to hour and a half to read it. So we're uh, this is a very much a first cut, but uh, we will be uh, back and doing all of it over the next uh, few weeks and months as the motions begin. And uh, I guess the first thing that will happen is the arraignment on Thursday or the preliminary hearing. Uh, so we'll be back. In the meantime, Roger Parloff, who is up past his bedtime, Scott Anderson, Natalie Orpit, Quinta Jurassic, and Anna Bauer, thank you all for joining us. And thank you all for joining us. This has been a emergency edition of the Lawfare Podcast, which is, of course, produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineers this episode, because when we do it live, we need more than one, are Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo and Anna Hickey running the live stream. Folks, I would be remiss if I did not remind you that you should become a material supporter of Lawfare so that you, like the people who asked questions today, can appear on the actual Zoom, be part of this conversation, get your questions answered. Go to patreon.com slash lawfare or just lawfaremedia.org slash support. Become a material supporter. You know you want to do it. We want to have you join the Lawfare Clubhouse. Uh, the Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, whom we are keeping up late tonight. Uh, our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.